compliance was always the standard. Now it's compliance plus because people realize that being in bed with a Russian oligarch is damaging to your brand and it doesn't speak to the values of the everyday United States American. And more importantly, it doesn't speak to the values of the people in the democracy 10, which is the G7 plus Australia, South Korea, and India in the largest democracies in the world and the most tech forward nations in the world. When these issues started to arise, it was an issue of compliance, but it was really an issue of ethical, moral fiber as a set of democratic nations. And that spilled into the industrial sector with reckless abandon. Welcome to one of the most important podcast series I've ever been associated with. Never the same business after the Ukraine war. In this five-part podcast series, along with my co-host, Brandon Daniels, we explore how currents which have been percolating since at least the onset of the pandemic in 2020 came to fruition in February of 2022 when Russia invaded. In the five topics of supply chain, sanctions and AML, corruption as a national security issue, cybersecurity, and ESG, we will explore how businesses have changed literally forever with the advent of the conflict in Ukraine. These strains did not come out of nowhere. They have been in business bubbling up over the past two to three years, perhaps even longer. But now, compliance officers, business executives, legal eagles, And the government needs to understand that business has changed forever. And we're going to explore that in this podcast series. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox with Brandon Daniels, CEO at Exeger. Brandon, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me on this podcast series. Thank you, Tom. It's always good to speak with you. Brandon, I wanted to start out with supply chain. I know this is something Exeger has been thinking about, has developed significant products and services around. From my perspective on the outside, we've got legal requirements have changed, regulatory requirements have changed, facts on the grounds have changed, and business operations have changed. So I can't think of a better way to start than supply chain. So with that, where do you see the biggest change in supply chain, not simply from the Russian invasion, but a series of events starting with a pandemic culminating with that invasion? Yeah. The first thing that's happened in the supply chain is that there have been a series of significant, almost tectonic shifts or shocks that have happened in the market that have made supply chain risk management more complex and more multifaceted. Obviously, there was the pandemic. That was the real catalyst, Tom, for a lot of what we're seeing today because we noticed really three things that happened. One, we noticed we were way over-reliant on China. And it was a deafening silence when we tried to start to procure goods that could help us fight the pandemic. We really had to take a front-foot-forward approach to buying, to innovation, to risk assessment and due diligence to try to buy as much 
safe and secure PPE, pharmaceuticals and medical devices as possible. And China was like, it was like this impenetrable force of dependence and reliance. That's then led to discoveries, right? For instance, how much of China's economy is actually counterfeit goods, right? 70% of the world's counterfeit market is driven out of China. The second thing that we saw was how much slave labor, economic warfare, economic imbalance there was between us and China. It just like hit us in the face. And then the last piece was, you know, it's not appropriate to have dependence on some country that's got that kind of adversarial interest. And so the pandemic taught us a lesson. So now we're seeing some of the pandemic issues ease. And when I say some of them, it's because we still have in a lot of countries, a lot of COVID challenges, right? Like China's going through continuous lockdowns. And so that was one of the first changes that we had as we realized that supply chain is multifaceted in terms of issues. It's not about weather events. It's not about logistics. It's not about just in time, you know, efficacy, you know, so many things that you didn't think could disrupt a supply chain now are like geopolitical tensions, right? I mean, that was, was low on the totem pole for a long time, Tom. The second thing we realized in the pandemic was that we had to start to regulate around this. So we put in place things like the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act to start to stamp out some of the modern slavery issues that we saw coming out of China during the pandemic. We started to enforce some trade and export laws. We saw that our rare earth elements were subject to Chinese dependence and Russian dependence as well, which is now further complicated things. And so we put in place some tariffs on things like neodymium that we use from everything to securing an F-35 to linking an electric car battery to the components it drives, right? So neodymium, iron, boron, boron magnets are going through a tariff case right now. But we saw also that we had to start regulating. We had to start making changes to drive industry, to reshore, to ally shore, to friend shore, whatever you were calling it, our supply chain. The last thing we saw is just how big of a shock these sort of regulatory issues, geopolitical issues, natural disasters could cause in a system and how many frailties or fragilities that they opened up. It's almost like, you know, you had this big earthquake in the pandemic, but then you had all these fault lines that we didn't realize that were on the edge of, you know, these really brittle places and just started to fall apart. So as we were regulating into them, we were actually creating new supply chain challenges because the solar industry was really dependent on photovoltaic cells from Xinjiang, which were made by Uyghur forced labor hands, right? So the complexities of it got much more significant. When we started to see the signaling on the Russia-Ukraine war. And this was like November 2021, Tom, that we started to see these things starting to occur. In December, we actually went to our clients. And I'm talking the biggest federal agencies, right? So DOD, three-letter agencies, right? Like DHS, state. We went to everybody and we said, hey, there's a problem. And there's a problem in a bunch of different sectors. We're getting a lot of aluminum, steel, rare earth elements, 
uh, for our planes, for our weapon systems, for our defense systems. We went to our clients that are in the tech sector and say, hey, Intel chips have not yet gone into um, non-neon, so like deep ultraviolet light photolithography. They've not gone into these new areas of technology and reduced the level at which they're etching into semiconductors. So their chips are dependent on neon. And the biggest source of neon is Ukraine, right? We were starting to raise alarm bells. And then we said, and by the way, this would be the single most significant incursion on sovereignty that we've seen in 20 years. And so this is an ethical conundrum. You know, Ukraine has to win. This is important for democracy. So we went to our clients in December and started saying that. And some responded and wanted to get a proactive look. So we were doing literally almost like war rooms, stand-ups in the morning, stands up in the evening, and pushing out to the federal government and to critical infrastructure companies and other companies information about their connections to Russia, their dependence on Russia. The realizations were startling in terms of not just our dependence on Russia, but what it meant for us if the Ukraine became incapacitated because of a brutal and unjustified war, right? And that had food and starvation issues attached to it. It had technology. You know, some of our biggest, largest outsourced software engineering hubs are in Ukraine. It obviously had the issue on semiconductors and microelectronics, which, by the way, were not in a great place in 2021 already. So we knew that this was a bad situation. And we knew that the United States was going to have to do something. And we knew that big, big part of that was going to be economic. So, you know, we saw these shocks. We saw these geopolitical tensions in the pandemic. We then saw those same bellwether points start to rise on Russia and Ukraine and realized that this was going to be a shift for everybody. Every supply chain risk manager was going to have to get smart and hip when it came to sanctions. Everyone was going to have to understand these new areas of due diligence, like going beyond your first tier of suppliers and understanding how ethical, how sustainable those companies were. We knew that there was going to be a big shift and learning curve for all the companies we were working with. And we spent time trying to get ahead of it. The biggest thing was for us, after we knew we had to get ahead of it, we had one thing that came up. And if you want to talk about it, I'm happy that then set the alarm bells ringing in January and February, took us to a new level of sort of risk and crisis management. And that really leads into what I wanted to explore next, which was that that risk, that shock that you observed largely by looking or working with your government clients actually has now moved to the private sector. And the things you've articulated in terms of national security, I don't think private sector companies realize that they have these national security issues and they're a part of not only the problem, but the solution. So I was wondering if you could perhaps end with a few words about what you observed in your communications and the shock you referenced and how that transcends really to the private sector in terms of the supply chain issues really being elevated to national security now. Yeah, yeah. So. In end of January, early February, there were a bunch of communications that the Russian foreign ministry and the Chinese foreign ministry started putting out. And as you know, those are state-run media. 
countries, right? So everything goes through a ministry of information or disinformation, whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that we saw with unequivocal clarity was that just after the Olympics, the invasion would begin. We knew that the war was coming, right? Like, and we put together analysis showing it. We showed it to federal government. We showed it to private sector. We knew unequivocally that this wasn't an any day thing, that Beijing and Russia had gotten into bed together and they were deciding that they were going to preserve China's image to the world for that moment in time. And then they were going to take their steps. They were going to take those next steps just after whatever, February 20th, right? And I was literally sitting in a meeting with a bunch of former government officials that I, I can't really talk a lot about, but I was sitting in a meeting with them talking about integrated deterrence in China and Russia. And we're literally sitting there as the Russian invasion unfolded. And what we realized is this won't be the same. This continuous non-kinetic warfare, this continuous economic espionage, this continuous industrial espionage was going to lead to sanctions, which we've now seen that were going to be comprehensive. It was going to lead to ethical trade-offs that big companies would have to make, which we've now seen, right? And it was going to lead to potentially elongated and prolonged inflation because this was exacerbating what had happened in the pandemic, which we had now seen. So all of these national security issues, which are interlinked with economic prosperity, right? I mean, if you can't get a mask during pandemic, that means you can't go to work. That's an economic prosperity issue, Tom, right? I was literally sitting in that meeting and I just thought everything's shifted. And so what that has now meant for the private sector is this new world of hey, I used to think reputational brand damage was important. Now I know it's everything. Compliance was always the standard. Now it's compliance plus because people realize that being in bed with a Russian oligarch is damaging to your brand and it doesn't speak to the values of the everyday United States American. And more importantly, it doesn't speak to the values of the people in the democracy 10, which is the G7 plus Australia, South Korea, and India in the largest democracies in the world and the most tech forward nations in the world. When these issues started to arise, it was a, an issue of compliance, but it was really an issue of ethical, moral fiber as a set of democratic nations. And that spilled into the industrial sector with reckless abandon. <laughs> Right. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. We're going to pick up on our next episode where you just left off when we're going to look at sanctions and AML. So I look forward to continuing this conversation. Perfect. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Never the Same Business After the Ukraine War. This podcast was produced by One Stone Creative and I want to give a shout out to Megan Doherty, Audra Casano, Darla Field, and the entire team at One Stone Creative. If you are interested in podcasting and need some help, or you want to have a turnkey solution, my suggestion is you would contact One Stone Creative. We're going to link to them in the show notes. On a very personal note, I hope that this podcast series will get you to think and be curious 
and look at all of the issues we have explored in this podcast series. I really believe we have had a true watershed moment, and I think those who don't understand that will be left in the dust of 2022. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening. Never the same business after the Ukraine war is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.